0: Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I'm Dorian Linsky. My guest today is a prolific and best-selling novelist whose 2019 novel 10 minutes 38 seconds in this strange world was shortlisted for the Booker Prize. She's also an essayist and academic who holds a PhD in political science. Born in Strasbourg and raised in Turkey, she became a British citizen in 2016. Her latest novel, The Island of Missing Trees, is set in Britain and Cyprus. Hello, Elif Shafak. Thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So I just recently read your your sort of short non-fiction book, How to Stay Sane in an Age of Division. And struck me that Cyprus is one of the few places in the world that's literally uh, divided. Did you write it at the same time as the novel and did the two books uh, inform
1: each other? Uh, I think they did. You know, the way I see it, maybe there's an underground tunnel that connects them, even though they're, they're very different. In many ways, they have been shaped by the pandemic. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, I found myself dealing with lots of negative emotions, with anxiety, uncertainty, like many of us. I remember reading a a piece at the beginning of the uh, pandemic saying, writers might not be very much affected by this because they're solitary creatures, they're used to working on their own, they're used to working from home. But my experience hasn't been that way at all. I mean, it has affected me because when so much is happening, when there's so much inequality, when people are dying in their thousands of course, it affects all of us. So I think this is a crucial moment, a crossroads to rethink, reassess, restructure our lives, our societies, and and reconnect with nature. And I'm sure that has in some ways shaped both my little nonfiction book, but also the fiction itself.
0: And I mean, you grew up in, in different places. But when during the years that you were in Turkey, when you were younger, how important was the Cyprus situation in life and politics? Was it discussed a lot?
1: It was very important. I mean, I grew up with all these, of course, stories um, about violence, very sad. Also, sometimes visually, you know, very, very powerful and, and harrowing stories. It was very much part of, you know, daily life, the culture. And of course, that was in a way the challenge for me because I've been wanting to write about Cyprus for a very long time, to be honest. I love the island. It's a beautiful island with beautiful people. At the same time, it's an island where wounds are still not healed. So it's it's a place where the past is not a bygone affair, you know, left behind. I think the past very much breathes, continues to exist within this present moment. And in that sense, the the wounds are open. So how do you tell the story of a divided place? How do you tell the story of a place that has been ravaged, in a way, by ethnic violence and, and civil war and, and all kinds of conflicts without yourself falling into the trap of nationalism, without yourself falling into the trap of tribalism. And I could not dare. I could never dare to tell the story. I didn't know how to approach. Only when I found the voice of the fig tree, only then I found an opening. And that gave me in a way, the courage, if I may put it this way, to, 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 to start writing the story.
0: And what character prefers to talk about islanders rather than Greeks or Turks? Do many Cypriots prefer to feel that way, or is that your sort of suggestion of, of how it would be more <laughs> fruitful to feel?
1: Um, of course, the answer changes, varies very much depending on whom we ask. You know, There are nationalists on both sides, but then there are people who really believe in, a, in coexistence and they want to build a future together. I think some of the things that really inspired me, maybe I should talk about that in more detail, Mm. is the Committee on Missing Persons. It is so moving and so important. The work that they're doing there, it has been initiated by UN. They work under the umbrella of UN, but basically it's Greek Cypriots and Turkish Cypriots working together. You know, they come from both sides of the island, and basically what they're doing is they dig into the ground to find the bones of the missing, not in order to revive old animosities, but to find the missing and to give them a proper burial, you know, dignity, but also the families a sense of closure. And what these people are doing is amazing, many of them are women, many of them are volunteers, And they put so much work and efforts for healing, coexistence. How can we build a better future than the one we've had before? And if I may add this very quickly, of course, this is not only happening in Cyprus. Let's remember across South America, in Guatemala, in Chile, in Argentina, Later on, of course, in Iraq, but before that in Spain after the civil war, in Bosnia after the genocide, there are many people across the world who are digging in order to find the bones of the missing and to give their loved ones a sense of closure. So all of that, I think, might resonate with people from different cultures.
0: Because 10 minutes, 38 seconds, you write about the marginalized people whose bodies end up in the cemetery of the Companionless in Istanbul. But here you've got another dimension of tragedy, which is bodies that aren't even found and identified for decades. There is no burial Mm
1: -hmm. until they're found. Absolutely. There is no burial. And there are, you know, in the book, there's a, there's a moment when it says, there are widows in Cyprus on whose tombstones it says, if you find my husband, will you please bury him next to me? You know, they're, they're incredibly moving stories. I have been reading the, the works of the Committee on Missing Persons, because this is a very mixed group of people. There are anthropologists, there are young volunteer students, but also forensic specialists, you know, lab specialists. It's very moving work that they do. And when you find the bones of a human being, can you tell if it belongs to a Christian person or a Muslim person, to a you know Turkish person or Greek person? There's a there's a moment when all of those divisions lose their meaning. So I think looking at the island through the Perspective of trees, if, if I may put it this way, enabled me to also realize that wherever in the world there has been a civil war, it's not only human lives that have been destroyed; it's also nature, it's also an entire ecosystem that we have been destroying.
0: And you like to make clear uh, in these last year novels there's, there's an author's note, and it, it, it does give a little bit of information about which incidents in your novels are based on fact, which is quite unusual. I think a lot of authors you know, they, 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 they don't sort of choose to point that out. Why is it important to you that the reader knows that, that certain things did actually happen?
1: I'm a fiction writer. Fiction is where my heart beats, you know. For me, everything is comes back to stories. However, I also have an interdisciplinary background and I love eclectic reading lists, you know, fiction and nonfiction. I stayed in academia for long years in political science, women's studies, queer studies, cultural studies, you know, fields that are very multidisciplinary by nature. And I love learning. So I'm, I'm curious about history, philosophy, political philosophy. And I think many of that somehow shapes my my stories. I don't like those artificial distinctions very much. I think, you know, what I like is to be a curious reader, Sometimes when some readers, and it's usually male readers who say this, they say, I don't have time for fiction. You know, I want to understand what's happening in the world. I read politics, I read history, I read economy and finance and technology. But my wife reads fiction, my girlfriend reads fiction. When I hear that, I really feel sad because I think inside fiction, actually, there is everything inside fiction there is history there is politics there is psychology and philosophy and so much more so I think I like these um, bridging seemingly different worlds because I think in the land of storyland they are connected anyhow
0: and how do you prefer to research are you somebody that wants to kind of be really steeped in this stuff before you start or do you like to start writing the story and then almost sort of yeah have a little square brackets you know? research this particular kind of tree or check this event like is it is it as you go along or is it the kind of the preparation stage
1: there's a big long preparation stage definitely only then I can fly you know but I need to feel the ground under my feet before I can take off and allow my imagination to fly so I need to know as much as I can as best as I can what I'm going to write about. But when I say knowledge, maybe it's more intuitive knowledge because writing is not a very rational process and there are very irrational elements in it too. So you do feed yourself with knowledge. But after that, I allow myself to be guided by intuition. I think there are two different ways of writing a novel. In the first path, the author wants to control everything and wants to know what's going to happen five chapters on. And I respect that. It's a bit more like engineering and there are amazing novels that have been produced in that way, but that's not my way. I like the second path, in which the writer maybe doesn't know quite what's going to happen in the next 30 pages. I like it when my characters surprise me. I like to be a little bit drunk, you know, not to know where exactly I'm going or the end of the story. Um, so, for that, you need to also rely on your intuition, not only on research or knowledge. Something more irrational is, is added into the picture. And I, I noticed you
0: like to have quite a lot of characters, sometimes these different timelines. And when a character is introduced, you know, often you will take time to really ground them and give them their own space in the story. They're not just there to sort of back up the protagonist. Is that just about the pleasure? of storytelling. You just don't want to sort of leave some of these characters on on the shelf without exploring them.
1: Mm -hmm. I think it's partly connected to this feeling of freedom that comes to me when I can be multiple. I think as human beings, we all have multitudes inside. As Walt Whitman used to say, we all contain multitudes, but we're not allowed to express those multitudes. We're not allowed to be plural in life. Whereas in fact, we have multiple belongings. When I am writing fiction, when I'm inside that imaginary world, I can become multiple. And I love the novel as a genre because that large canvas allows me to open up spaces where a diversity of opinions can be heard. I don't think a writer's job is to try to give answers or, you know, preach or teach or I don't like any of that. But I think a writer's job is to ask questions. You know, including difficult questions about difficult issues, just to create open spaces and then always leave the answers to the reader because every reader is going to come up with their own answers. It's like unique, like their own fingerprints. So I think I'm, I'm very drawn to questions, untold stories, silences, but also multiplicity of voices. That's why I feel very much at home and I feel very free inside the, the bigger canvas of a novel.
0: That sort of man that you talk about who who which I always think of like Neil Gallagher syndrome, who insists that he just won't, there's no point reading stuff that's made up because you should just read about things that have actually happened. But it seems that it's actually very hard for a nonfiction book unless it involves an enormous amount of sort of reporting and interviewing, to get that multiplicity. So I find that if you want to learn about Soviet communism or Chile and Pinochet or you know, so many different kind of political situations. It's like the nonfiction is is obviously extremely useful, but it's the novels where you can get the most voices, the most experiences.
1: I fully agree, you know, and I think that is why novels reading fiction does give us a different kind of cognitive flexibility because at the end of the day, it relies on empathy and empathy is like a muscle. The more we use it, the stronger it becomes. You know, just the ability to put yourself in the shoes of another person, even if for a few hours, it's a good, humbling exercise for the mind and for the soul, in my opinion. It gives us a different kind of intellectual mobility and pluralism, and there's no way we can genuinely connect unless we know people's emotions, unless we know people's stories. Those are the things that really stay with us. And there are interesting studies that show actually most of what we remember, we remember in a more sensual way. You know, we we remember in a more emotional way. So there is something about fiction that really deepens emotional intelligence and uh, empathy. And I don't know a single person in this life who doesn't need emotional intelligence whether we are bakers, designers, you know, dentists, politicians, or artists, we all need empathy and emotional intelligence.
0: One thing that I really enjoyed and was curious about was some Merriam's strange aphorisms. And I wondered, because they seem to it's a certain way of thinking. And I wondered are those kind of real figures of speech did you invent them for her because that's the character she is or, or are those you know taken from from life
1: all those proverbs are real um and they're true you know
0: <laughs> they're brilliant i wish i could i wish i could sort of remember one to quote now but they're just so it, like i said it's just a completely different way of thinking
1: mm-hmm, definitely and and i love that you know i think i do feel connected to oral culture oral storytelling, but also the world of superstitions, cooking, things that in Turkey people would call women's culture, which I think is a very gender biased way of looking at it. But that world is usually belittled and underestimated, and I never think of it that way. I would love my fiction to connect written culture and oral culture. And it's very personal for me because I was raised by women like Marianne. You know, my grandmother was a bit like her. And I was raised by a very traditional, very superstitious grandmother. She was not very well educated herself because she had been denied a proper education for being a girl. And yet she wholeheartedly supported girls' education. And this was a very wise woman. So I think she taught me that. You know, as much as I love books, as much as I've dedicated my life to books, I'm aware that there are different ways to attain knowledge. There are many people who maybe, you know, don't have diplomas or degrees, and yet and yes, they are very wise, just like there are many people who have fancy degrees or diplomas and they can be empty inside. So this has nothing to do with your degree or your diploma. And I think I learned that early on thanks to my grandmother that knowledge and wisdom were very different things than just information. Mm. I do make a difference between information, knowledge, and wisdom.
0: You mentioned cooking there, and food is like particularly important here. I mean, it features in your novels normally, but here there's a storyline revolving around a restaurant in Cyprus. There's even a two-page menu, and there's a passage which, which made me Google a recipe for shrimp saganaki, which um, I need to try. Does food play a particular, you know, sort of a different role here?
1: I think it does, yes. And for me too. I mean, I love reading cookbooks. I'm not a good chef myself at at all. Uh, I'm very bad in the kitchen. But I love the history of cooking, the rituals of cooking, and I really respect it. You know, in the Middle East or the Mediterranean across the Levant, we have these baklava wars. You know, the Lebanese say it's our baklava. The Syrians say, no, it's our baklava. The Jordanians believe it's their baklava. We folks like to think it's our baklava or the Greeks call it Greek baklava. But at the end of the day, it's everyone's baklava. And that's the beauty of food, because it doesn't care about these ethnic, nationalistic, you know, frontiers that we take for granted. Food really travels across borders. And I think with people like Mariam, there's this naive expectation in their world that if if we can all sit around the same table and break bread together, maybe we would misunderstand each other a little bit less.
0: I remember visiting Jerusalem and somebody telling me that, you know, the Israeli and, and Arab restaurants would both be serving falafel and hummus, but they mm. would think it was theirs and they would think it was very, very different. He was he was like, it sort of tastes the same.
1: <laughs> Definitely. And people get very emotional, like, you know, Greeks and Turks, we get very emotional about the coffee, whether it's Greek coffee or Turkish coffee. So these are the things that um, I have seen all, all around me growing up in Turkey.
0: You once said, in Turkey, a novelist is more than a novelist. She is a public figure. People always talk about writers, but seldom about their writing. Is it therefore natural to you to be involved now in, in organisations and campaigns to speak out, to be a public figure rather than a kind of pure sort of cloistered artist?
1: It's not very natural in the sense that I'm an introvert, you know. I find it slightly difficult, to be honest, to step into the public space But there is a part of me that genuinely believes we all need to become more engaged and active citizens in whatever we do. I've also learned coming from Turkey that if you are a storyteller from a wounded democracy or a shattered democracy such as Turkey, you don't have the luxury of being apolitical. You know, you can't say, I don't want to talk about what's happening outside the window, if so much is happening outside the window and if it bothers you and if it hurts your conscience. Also, I'm a feminist, and one of the many wonderful things that I've learned from feminist movements of past generations is that politics is not necessarily the parliament, political parties, and all that. The personal is also political. Wherever there's power, relationship, there is politics. So if you describe politics in such a broad way, you might be writing about gender and sexuality. That, too, is political work. And maybe that's what I've learned uh, coming from Turkey. And I do think we have entered an age in which we need to hear writers' voices more. I'm not talking about party politics, or, and definitely not partisan politics, but about core issues like freedom of speech, rule of law, women's rights, LGBTQ plus rights, separation of powers, democracy. You know, these are the things that are so vital for all of us. And I think we have to speak about them. And do you think that
0: other countries have learned the right lessons from from Erdogan's evolution into an authoritarian, particularly, I suppose, I'm thinking since 2016? Do you feel that that old feeling of it can't happen here has diminished somewhat and the West is a little less smug?
1: Uh, partly, but only partly. I mean, as you pointed out, especially until 2016, because we've seen Brexit happen, we've seen Trump happen, and then we've seen the rise of populist nationalist movements across all over Europe. Before that, I think there was this assumption that some parts of the world are liquid and some parts of the world are solid. And in those solid lands of the West, you don't have to worry about human rights. You don't have to worry about women's rights. It's already achieved. It's in those liquid lands that you need to be concerned I really had people telling me that it was very understandable for me to be a feminist because after all, I was Turkish, you know, so you need feminism in Turkey as if you don't need feminism in America. That perception has been shuttered, but only partly. There is still, I think, a lot of learning we need to do. And for that, we need to be open to listening to people, not coming only from different cultures, but also listening to minorities, what minorities are telling us. You know the power imbalance, the power inequalities. who are the people who are not invited to the table when decisions are being made? We're living in societies with widening inequalities, and I think there are some serious conversations that we need to have if we want to build a better, fairer society
0: well, you've written about how much worse social media has become over the past decade and and I've always found that there's a certain number of Twitter followers, which thankfully i haven't hit yet, past which. It becomes just extremely difficult to operate. You have one point six million and I wonder how do you function on it? How do you use it in a way that is useful and not maddening?
1: Yes, it's very difficult. And to be honest, I use it in a very, very limited way. Um I also post on Instagram, but again limited. I try to focus on things that I really care about, whether it's books, culture, literacy, you know, women's equality, um, LGBTQ plus rights. These are the things that I do write about, but I never, ever respond. I try not to personal um, attacks or anything like that. But it's not only me, of course. There was a UN report recently carried out across many countries which show that abuse against women in the digital space is escalating. Hmm. So if you happen to be a woman journalist, writer, any public figure in that digital public space Um, there is an extra amount of sexism, misogyny, and verbal abuse that you have to deal with, and it cannot go on like this. And I think we need to put pressure on these big corporates. They need to take these things seriously. I am sorry, but they're not taking sexism seriously. They're not taking misogyny seriously. And we need to push them as citizens to to understand that this is happening and it's serious.
0: Did you think that you had to leave turkey when you did in order to have the career you've had could could you've done what you do remaining there
1: that's that's a tough question for me because emotionally i feel very attached to turkey and of course it's you know my motherland and i'm i love istanbul i am an istanbulite and i think anyone who reads my fiction can see there is a genuine love for the city and i miss the city mm. but on the other hand it is a very very difficult place to exist in if you're a writer or a journalist or a poet or a cartoonist, for instance, who who, who needs the freedom to make fun of, of people in power. So you need freedom. And that is not there. Anything and everything can offend. It is very difficult to question history, official narratives. I mean, when I say this, I'm aware of the fact that every nation state at the end of the day has its own official narrative. But there is a difference between a democracy and a non-democracy. In a democracy, you can walk into a bookstore and you can find many books that question the official narrative. In a non-democracy, the authors of those books will be prosecuted, put on trial, or maybe imprisoned. So... That is one thing. But also, it's equally difficult to write about sexuality, about gender. Being here in the UK gave me that freedom, but there is a certain melancholy attached to it, if I may be completely honest. So, on the one hand, I celebrate and embrace multiple belongings. On the other hand, I'm also very much aware of the Mm. absences, the losses, you know, the fractures in your soul.
0: And I've spoken to various writers and musicians um, who consider themselves... Uh, to be living in exile from their homelands, but now you have British citizenship as well, uh, so it's just as much your home as Turkey was. Does that diminish that feeling of exile at all?
1: It does, of course. In in, in some ways, it does. I mean, this is my adopted land, adopted country. UK is my home. And at the same time, Istanbul, Turkey is my home too. I think it is possible to have multiple, you know, belongings, attachments, as I mentioned. But also, I think about this a lot, you know, portable homelands. What does it mean to have roots? I was thinking about it the other day. The writer Amin Maalouf, he says, of course, Lebanese-born, writing in French. You know, there are lots of things that he says that resonate with me. He says he doesn't like the imagery of roots because it feels very claustrophobic, you know, confined, I want to think of roots in a different way. Can we have roots not necessarily buried in the ground, but up in the air? Um, Because this is what you're accused of, you're accused of being a rootless cosmopolitan, right? If you Mm. have multiple attachments, that's what they always say, nationalists, but I think I don't have to think of roots in those terms, I can, like the old Baobab tree in the legend, you can have upside down, you know, trees and roots that are up in the air, drawing sun and rain and learning from multiple cities and cultures at the same time. I would like to see myself as a citizen of the world, as a citizen of humanity. That doesn't mean you're a citizen of nowhere.
0: Do you still feel that kind of urge to just go and, and live somewhere else entirely? Or if you, do you feel sort of you reached a point in your life where you've, you've settled
1: I think in many ways, I feel like I have settled. Maybe it comes with age, maybe it comes with motherhood. But Mm. also, to be honest, writing in English is a sense of belonging too. Inside the English language, I have found a home. And when I say this, I'm not going to claim that it's easy, because when you're an immigrant, when you're an outsider or a latecomer, You're always aware of what you're not able to say. There's always a gap between the mind and the tongue. You know, the mind runs faster and the tongue is trying to catch up. Whether it's my mispronunciation, my grammatical mistakes, you know, there are things, nuances that will always remind me that I will always be an immigrant. So it's not an easy sense of belonging. And yet at the same time, I love this language. I love thinking in this language and writing in English. So that too gives a sense of home and belonging.
0: Finally, I wanted to ask you about music because I was just listening to your Desert Island Discs, and you're one of very few people. uh, In fact, I can't think of another one to choose uh, very heavy metal on Desert Island Discs. (laughs) And then you said that you sort of you wrote to this music on a loop, and which is something most writers would find impossible. Most writers who write to music, it's kind of instrumental music. It's quite sort of ambient in its effect. It doesn't have words, sort of being blasted at you. How does that work for you? Why is that useful?
1: Yes, I mean, it, it, yeah, I love I love heavy metal and I love sub-genres of heavy, heavy metal, like industrial, progressive, symphonic metal to a certain extent, metalcore. Um, I love Viking, Scandinavian metal, you know, and I do listen to different bands from different parts of the world. I cannot write in silence. It just makes me so nervous, you know, I feel uncomfortable. I cannot write in very neat and tidy, super clean, sterile, you know, places. I like a bit of chaos. Maybe I feel (laughs) I, I operate better when there's a bit of mess around me. And this is the kind of music that has always excited me. There's so much emotion in heavy metal. You know, uh, there's this intensity of emotions that really, really helps me to zoom myself into another space. And as you said, I love to listen to a song on repeat. I can listen to the same song maybe 60, 70 times again and again. That really helps me to concentrate.
0: Was there a metal scene where you were growing up or was it very much a private thing?
1: There was a metal scene, uh, and it was amazing. Both in Ankara and in Istanbul, you know, I would go to these music shops. We knew each other. Of course, back then, you would buy LPs and cassettes and T-shirts, all these um, symbols, rings. It's the, the whole culture of, of heavy metal. I, I, I do respect it. Of course, it's a very big, vast kingdom, and, you know, there are some bands and some people I can never um, feel close to. but. Overall, overall, I think this is an amazing genre which has been able to recreate itself. Heavy metal has a very long life. And people think that people who listen to metal are violent. I don't, I don't think so. Most of the people that I've seen, you know, musicians and listeners are gentle souls. There are some problematic, uh, of course, maybe people. But in general, I think there's, there's so much genuine, raw emotion in, in heavy metal that really speaks to my to my soul. And people find it strange that a middle-aged Turkish writer, uh, and maybe I'm calmer in my daily life, listens to this kind of music. But it really helps me to focus and concentrate on my work.
0: Yeah, the bit that amazed me was, I think, reading that you, you had it on headphones in the British Library, which is where, where sort of silence is sacred. And I like the idea that there was a corner of it that was secretly noisy.
1: <laughs> Definitely. <laughs>
0: Thank you so much for joining me, Alif Shafak.
1: Thank you so much. It was such a lovely conversation. I appreciate it.
0: The Island of Missing Trees is out now, published by Penguin. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can help us by sharing a link on social media, forwarding it to friends, and or leaving a review on iTunes. Take care and see you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Doreen Linsky. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena and The audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The bunker is a Podmasters production.